Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. All right. So how's everybody doing? Welcome back. This is episode 197. On today's show, the goal is to cut through all the noise. There's a lot of information that is getting published out there from paid publications to echo chambers on news feeds to different people that you're talking to. And the goal of today's episode is to get you some data points and some information from a credible source. And who is that and why should you believe him? Well, his name is Alex Chesofsky. And Alex is a second time guest on Life After Business Podcast. Alex is the director of speaking at ITR Economics, and I've seen Alex speak twice now. One at the Minnesota Vistage presentation with, I think there were 750 people in the audience. Another one was at a local CEO peer group. I think there was another 800 people in the audience at Allied Executives. And I really enjoy the data that Alex brings because what ITR Economics is, is they're a world-renowned economic forecasting and consulting company. So they're gathering data. So they're economists, but then they also consult with businesses in the mid-market, like the CEO uh, roundtables, like the Vistages, to provide them data points for acquisition targets, for pricing supply chain, the strategies, all these different things that are that are factually based in data to help owners navigate the world that we live in. Well, he was on the show back in 2018, and they've had this thesis for the last six, seven years about a slight downturn in the early 2020s and then the Great Depression in the 2030s. Well, since I had him on, we've had a worldwide pandemic that has decimated our global economy. And But by the way, the episode that Alex and I did a year and a half ago is still super relevant. They've got a bunch of good data it points in there about their overall thesis. But today, I figured I'd have him back on the show so Alex can explain how our current situation impacts their forecasts and their thesis, and then what we should be doing as business owners to forecast our growth, to forecast the strategic plans that you're 
you're going to need to be putting into place and really cut through all the noise of all the different things that you're hearing. So that way you can take these data points and then put them into the decisions that you're going to be having to make. Before we kick off the interview, I want to make sure that everybody knows some of the resources that Arcona's put together to help you bridge the gap between the current situation you're in and then a long-term plan to get out of this and to grow value. So we have two online educational resources that you can be diving into. The first one is the Intentional Growth Digital Course. Well, this is gonna help you learn how to grow the value of your business with the end in mind using the five principles. There's 36 videos, five plus hours of content, dozens of supporting exercises like net proceeds calculators, and it's all about business valuations, value growth, and all the different exit options and how they work. It's based on our two-day live bootcamp because you should be diving into education right now because one of the biggest determining factors that's going to separate successful entrepreneurs from the average business owner when this is said and done is their ability to understand how to create long-term value in their company. And in order to focus on long-term value creation, it takes a shift in your mindset, which you've heard me talk about day in and day out. And that shift is away from annual income. And by that, I'm talking about optimizing for salary and distributions to shifting to focusing on long-term value creation by increasing your EBITDA, increasing your multiple and paying down debt. The worst thing you could be doing now and in the future is spend a bunch of time, money, and resources and energy keeping your business going only to realize when you wake up in three to five years and you're out of energy or passion, you want to do something else, that your company's not worth what you want it to be worth and you have limited options to transition your role or liquidate your ownership. So check out the Intentional Growth Digital Course. It'll help you shift your mindset, understand valuations and value growth. It's only $9.95 and you can also hire us to guide you through it if you want. And we're also working with CEO peer groups to help them and their peer groups go through this material together. And then if you really can't look up to the horizon just yet, then check out our Mastering Your Cash Flow course. It is three plus hours of videos about how to create a 13-week cash flow statement, how to build your budget, revise your forecast, and start thinking about how to intentionally grow once you've bridged the gap between now and in the future. So I think once you understand what it's going to take to grow value, then you need to be taking the things that you're going to listen to and learn in this episode into consideration as you build your long-term plan. So a couple of things that you're going to learn in today's episode is what are the leading indicators to track and measure the health of the economy? Which data points should you be taking into consideration when you're looking at information? And then how deep and long is this economic pain going to be? What are some of the implications of the Federal Reserve printing money? And then how the corporate and consumer debt is going to affect the recovery period. And then ITR Economics will and Alex will be talking about what is their forecast for the rest of 2020, 2021? How is the unemployment rate going to bounce back or recover? And then what is their forecast about the future of consumer behavior and how revenues are going to flow, supply chains that are domestic here, but then also international and how China impacts that? And then how to be viewing the rates of change and how to look at the rates of change to really understand the recovery and whether it's going to be a u-shaped recovery or a v-shaped tons of information alex is fantastic um, i love his positive attitude and how to be able to take what's going on and what even how the 2030 potential recession big recession that they're talking about how to take all that into consideration when you're controlling your 
current situation. I think it's a fantastic interview. I hope you enjoy it. I also have a couple links in the show notes about things that I'm paying attention to, which as you hear me talk a lot about Ray Dalio and the long-term debt cycle and some publications that he's releasing, I think that there's some amazing material out there that you can be consuming that are fact-based. And you, if you look at the 360-degree perspective, people that think that we're going to bounce back. People think that we're going to have a long depression. If you take all this and synthesize it and then apply it to yourself, you'll be able to come up with your own opinion and then how that opinion impacts your business and the future strategies that you want to imp- uh, implement inside your business. So I enjoyed this podcast a lot. I geek out on this stuff and Alex is a fantastic guest. So I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed the interview. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Alex, how are you doing? I'm great, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, we we just got kind of got done chatting about our, a little bit of our new norm and what people are doing. Uh, I'm excited for so many more reasons than just one. You know, I think the last time you were on my show was about a year and a half ago, um, <laughs> which I think we're here to recalibrate some of the things that we were talking about. And then, um, you know, I was just telling you that uh, my audience has kind of gotten the gist over the last year or so that I've gotten to become addicted to economics, what's going on. Because, you know, the, the business valuations that I deal with and what we talk about are the underlying underlying and things that are happening inside the economy. And that's why when I've been following you, I watched you at uh, one of the local CEO peer groups, Allied talk in October, which was kind of just repeating a lot of the stuff that we had talked about. And uh, then... 2020 happens. <laughs> Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah. And I think on your pocket or on your uh, website, you have this thing called the black swan, which I think we are living in it. So yes, for sure. What I wanted to do, Alex, for the people that had not listened to that episode uh, or do not know about you, maybe just real quick background of you, ITR, and then uh, what is like, what was your main thesis going into before the black swan? Yep. And then how has that thesis changed? And then we'll unravel all the main topics that, um, that I got curiosity on. All right. We're going to dive right into it. So uh, a little bit of background on myself. Um, I came to ITR about five years ago now from a, a world of market research and consulting where we dealt with individual companies, per- particularly in manufacturing, but uh, really a- any business that was looking to grow, looking to understand their market size. And um, I was brought in by Alan Bolio, who is the president of ITR Economics, to help expand our speaking game, to kind of get the message out to a wider audience through events like the Allied meeting that you alluded to. And I found it to be a fascinating field of work because I'm not an economist by trade. I have a, a business background and an MBA. That's my education. But I find that the reason why ITR's you know, approach to looking at the economy, to talking about the economy is so interesting is because it's focused on the practical and the applicability of economic information. It's not just theoretical the way that most economists talk about it, right? You have, you have all of these people that say, well, this is what should happen. 
How about we talk about what's actually happening and what business <laughs> leaders can be doing based on For that sure. information? So that's what I think ITR excels at. Uh, I am the director of speaking services at ITR. So I not only do a lot of presentation, I do about 75 events a year all around the country and uh, quite a bit of international speaking as well. But I, I'm in charge of making sure that our entire speaking team, which is now eight people strong, uh, is speaking with uh, a single voice that we're on the same page, uh, any cool. kind of training that needs to be done, I'm responsible for that. And then ITR broadly really has three core tenets to what we do. We make these presentations at association events, at company, uh, you know, annual sales meetings. Uh, we do a lot of webinars, just basically helping people stay informed, cut through the noise of what's going on in the economy and telling them what mm -hmm. is important to pay attention to and what is not. We also do some standard off-the-shelf publications, things like the Trends Report. It's our monthly publication that gives forecasts for over 40 different vertical markets. So if you wanted to pick up something to a good quality read that gives you some insight into what to expect for the next three years, that's something I'd certainly recommend. And then the, the third component of what we do is probably the most practical, the most applicable from our conversations perspective today. And that is we work with individual companies one-on-one. -on -one. So we take what's going on in the economy, we apply that to that particular company's business, and we forecast their sales or their unit shipments out three years into the future. And then discuss things like, you know, what are the underlying assumptions, what you can expect, what you should be doing based on that information. So one of the things that we had been talking about, we discussed this at length the last time you and I spoke, I talked about it again in October of last year when, when we met in person, was this notion that the economy goes through uh, business cycle phases. They, it goes up and down. It's kind of like this waveform pattern that evolves over time. And that's very natural. That No economy is always going to be growing. There's going to be swelling and expansion. There's going to be periods of contraction. That's all healthy. Part of the reflection of the fact that people's behavior change. We sometimes spend more, sometimes less. Uh, and we react to economic events in the world around us. And, and really, you know, kind of to, to tie the night off on that idea that we had been expecting a slowdown in the U.S. economic cycle mm -hmm. the last time we discussed this. Um, we, we saw it peak in kind of mid to late 2018 on the back end of the tax reform package that we had passed that year. You know, mm -hmm. businesses did, did see, um, you know, lower corporate tax rates. Individuals saw their tax rates lowered. So we were spending more money. We were doing more CapEx. We were mm -hmm. uh, investing more in uh, our life experiences. So the economy saw the swell. It peaked and had been coming down off of that peak over the course of 2019. So this is something that we were expecting that was not at all a surprise to us. Uh, the, the actual data was performing very much in line with what we had been expecting to see, uh, which is really bifurcated into two different categories. The consumer-driven economy was going through a mild slowdown, but it was not facing any kind of negativity. It was going to go through what we call a soft landing, which means growth rates come down a little bit, but then they start picking back up. And uh, the industrial economy was expected to have a mild recession in the first half of this year with a low point occurring sometime around mid-2020. And we had already seen uh, tools called leading indicators, which mm -hmm. is something that we use quite a bit at ITR, point to a very consistent message that the economy and the cycle was going to be rising in the second half of 2020. So we, we saw consistent time after time after time, the message was you can expect economic fundamentals to improve and to accelerate in the second half of this year and into 2021. 
And then, of course, we had the uh, end of the year. We started to hear some murmurs around the virus ravaging China. We saw that evolve over the course of January and February. Uh, we saw massive shutdowns in Hubei province. The epicenter of the virus there was a city named Wuhan, which actually has a lot of concentration of manufacturing and industrial activity in the country. But even into early March, if you look back at the US and the European reaction, it was relatively like why should we care? It, it's yeah. going uh, in a far part of the world. And I think a part of that can be understood. The last time we saw uh, epidemics like this kind of erupt, SARS, MERS, the, the swine flu, that was contained within mm -hmm. the Asia region. And so it really never uh, manifested itself here in the developed world and in European or in North American society. But obviously, as we now know, with uh, you know, 2020 vision in hindsight, uh, that was not the case for this <laughs> Literally particular no pun intended. situation. <laughs> so starting in March, essentially, we saw the culmination of that trend erupt mm -hmm. full on first in Europe, like Italy and Spain. And then, of course, it came to the U.S. And so that was the, the real first game changer related to that original business cycle that I talked about. We saw uh, a, a almost immediate shot off of both industrial and consumer activity as we locked down cities and states and countries as a whole. Uh, and obviously, it's still ongoing. It's It, it has a, a big question mark surrounding the timing of it. When will it truly come to an end? Will there be a second surge as we start opening up? Will there be another surge later in the fall as conditions are ripe for flu type of season uh, re-emerging, you know, September, October, November timeframe? And, and that's really still something that we're trying to all figure out. What does the right. timing of this thing look like? Meanwhile, we had another Almost, uh, you know, I hate to use the term unprecedented because it's been thrown around so much, but we've never had a situation where two black swan events happen simultaneously, right? right? And of course, the second black swan event I'm talking about is the oil price collapse, which was started by the fact that the Russians and the Saudis decided not to negotiate it, couldn't get along, <laughs> exactly. That's been uh, crazy and, and, to and watch. So there was a bit of posturing, which, you know, Mr. Putin is, is one to do on occasion. But the reality is we had that happen at the worst possible time imaginable because they were talking about and then actually acting on increasing supply substantially as global demand was just hemorrhaging. It was just <laughs> down significantly as a result of all the closures and the shutdowns. And so we've got a, ourselves into a market condition where now about 30 million barrels per day, or roughly 30% of global oil demand has been obliterated. It's just gone, basically, oh, overnight. <laughs> We've got a situation where the Saudis and the Russians up until fairly recently were threatening that they were going to pump record levels of output. And so it's, of course, this massive disconnect between supply and demand fundamentals. So we saw oil prices go negative in the latter part of March. That's a little bit of a, of a misunderstood phenomenon. Oil prices are traded on monthly futures contracts. And so what was happening at that time was people were actually willing to pay not to take delivery of actual physical barrels of oil. So that's why we saw it go negative for a short period of time. Obviously, it has bounced back some since then. And, and I think as of today, we're trading around $23 a barrel mm -hmm. on, the, on the May contracts, which are scheduled to expire about two weeks from now. But the reality is that price will continue to remain under pressure as long as this supply-demand fundamental isn't addressed. And we don't mm -hmm. expect that to be addressed for quite some Good. time. Right. 
right? And even with their negotiations, it's not yeah. putting a dent in the 30 million extra barrels. Yeah. So then <clears throat> to kind of uh, tee up some of the, uh, the, the things that I'm interested in the, and like, and, and how to unpack different parts of this house yeah. is, is you, you all, and also ITR has had this whole 2030 great depression that, right. you, that you guys had kind of put a bigger picture on. And so let me just kind of, and we, I'll let you take this wherever you want and hopefully we can do it in a way, in an order that makes sense. So as I've been like, just a, a an honestly, a, just a addicted to understanding this information over the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah. One of my big sources that I love to follow is Ray Dalio. Um, he, he's big on the debt cycles. So he has been modern monitoring those, you know, those 10 year, 11 year, whatever, uh, business cycles would based on the debt cycle. And yeah. the fact that, you know, his whole de- deal right now is that we're at the term debt cycle. And so like what I want, I want to maybe kind of tee all this in over like, how do we forecast above this? How does that change your 2030 situation? And honestly, as I've been watching now, you talked about the oil prices and the pandemic and the fact that like, and I get all that and that's, those are two big black swans. But what I've been watching Alex as I've been in the, the the belly of the beast of mergers and acquisitions is the insane amount of debt and leverage on corporations, consumers, and then this private equity industry that's doing a, you know seven times EBITDA leverage buyouts, and you whew, take away thirty percent in revenue from company in every industry. Yeah, and the ripple effect that's going to have of this deleveraging, I just don't. Like I just like you watch and you go, holy shit. And then the fact that like the thing that brings all that back to normal is people wake up, they go biking, they buy marshmallows, they buy, you know, they could go to movies, the consumers are driving the economy. And if that's not certain, how does this all <laughs> come back together, man? Yeah, like, yeah. Is that, is that, I don't know what order you want to take this, but I'm just, uh, well, I, I think I'll start by saying that I share your concern, and 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 we are obviously watching uh, with fascinated economist eyes uh, to see this. You know, we're now north of six trillion dollars that the government has decided to pump into the economy, whether it's from the Fed uh, issuing various support instruments for credit markets or through CARES Act one and two. Now that the Congress has gotten involved. We're talking about two and a half trillion dollars coming in direct stimulation of the economy, whether it's to individuals or cons- or to businesses, large and small. How about so states and local governments too? Yeah, and states and local governments. And and th- I think the key message is the government has said that there is no limit to what they're willing to do. Uh, mm-hmm. That's to me the most fascinating thing. Is okay if we could at least have some sort of boundary around it, but we have indicated no intention to to cap it at any level. This notion of of cost uh, has been thrown essentially out the window. We will do whatever it takes to stimulate the economy. And and I think when you look at it from a short-term perspective, you can understand why they're doing so, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to stop the hemorrhaging. You've got to put, you know, clamp the wound before you can start addressing the long-term health of the patient. So that that is sensible. Um, But it does play into this this concern that we've had for a very long time that the ability to live beyond your means is not something that's sustainable long term and we are now uh, jacking that ability up by a magnitude of x right we're 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 no longer seem to care what the national debt levels are we're now if you count uh, the, the most recent actions we're now north of 
30 trillion. But the question becomes, is there a magic number of some sort? Is 50 trillion, is 100 trillion something that we can handle? Uh, and I think that's kind of where our thinking is right now, is mm -hmm. at least at the federal level, at the, at the government debt level, the question is not so much how much debt is there, but does the world have a... Uh, a, 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 an ability to continue to put faith in the U.S. government from mm -hmm. repaying the debts that they have. Mm -hmm. So it's worth noting, uh, mentioning that uh, you know the the larger numbers seem a lot less scary when your interest rates are at essentially zero. I think uh, last week we were looking at 0.6 percent on the 10-year Treasuries, mm -hmm. and when you consider the fact that the United States has never really even made an attempt to pay back the actual debt itself. All we're paying is the interest payments on yep. that debt and then continuing to roll it over and over and over again. Then you can see how we can keep this kind of can kicked down the road for at least the next several years. So from a timing perspective, to answer your question directly, we have not really made a significant change to our 2030s outlook. We, we, we do recognize that there's now gonna be more austerity that's gonna be needed, more cutbacks in spending, probably higher taxes that we're all going to be dealing with. But we clearly don't see that happening until at the very earliest, the second half of this decade. The 22, 23, this kind of time frame, the next several years, the government's focus will be getting the economy stable and breathing again and then up on that next rising trend. At that point, you'll start to see a lot of the fiscal hawks in the government start to talk about, all right, how do we now deal with right. the after effects of the medication mm -hmm. that we've injected the patient with, right? Right. Which I, I like, I want to, and we can, I want to dive into that further too, like the, the long-term macro piece. But I think to your point, like what, okay, the next few years, how are these, how are we going to actually make sure that the wound is tied off? Right. Yeah. And so like one of the things that I'm interested in is like, so there was this guy, I can't remember his name. He was on the wall street, the, the journal podcast. And he was talking about this leveraged buyout industry. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. Right. And he said, it's bigger than the subprime mortgage industry. And the fact that like a lot of the PE money has been coming from pension funds and big endowments were, who are already over, like their liabilities were already bigger. So there you have this big problem that's just like are we getting to the point where like when you take 30 to 40 50 percent of revenue from the gdp that's being generated across the country and make it disappear yeah like, where you expose the the short-term debt cycle or the short-term debt on all these different companies and then how do you reforecast that when you don't know how the consumers are going to go back and spend money yeah, it's it's certainly something that we're we're grappling with on on many different levels. I mean, you look at the unemployment numbers that are coming out, right? 30 million now is the latest figure in initial unemployment claims. What does that look like a year from now? Our current thinking is it's not as high as that number, but it doesn't go back to the pre-2000 uh what are your thoughts on like the actual numbers. Like how did well, like how so I think if we look at the actual number of unemployed, it was around three and a half million, something like that, or, or three and a half percent on the unemployment rate, I should say, then we're talking about an unemployment rate that's probably closer to 7%, double that when we get into the second half of 2021, that's our current expectation. So a lot of the high skilled workers, once things start to get opened up again, I think they will find jobs once again. I mean, keep in mind, manufacturing sector was struggling to fill positions before we went into this thing. Yeah. But uh, the reality is a lot of sectors from hospitality and travel to events, uh, to retail environment, to food service, you're just not going to be able to get all those people working right away. So we're thinking that um, 
there, there's an elevated unemployment rate a year from now, and it's certainly going to be impacting our ability to kind of normalize related to, to the pre-Black Swan event cycle. Mm-hmm. So uh, I talked about the government stimulus. I, I, I guess you could almost call that the third Black Swan event because uh, it, it, it is also unprecedented in nature. We've done more to stimulate the economy in a shorter period of time than anything we even attempted during the 08-09 Great Recession. Right. <laughs> the so, Fed's buying junk bonds. Right, right. And, and <laughs> propping up all sorts of markets. And so um, I think their goal is to mitigate the downside pressure as much as possible. They realize they're not going to be able to stem all of it, but by giving money directly to individuals, by supporting businesses, you know, and, and essentially saying we will do continue to do whatever it takes to keep things rolling as much as we can. That is, I believe, is going to have some positive effect. I think we're not seeing it just yet because typically those types of programs take about six months to work their way through. Considering the uncertainty in the environment that we're operating in right now, that could be nine, 12 months down the road. So we're going to see the positive impact of all all that stimulus. But when is the real question? And we know Mm -hmm. it's going to be delayed at least for a a, a short while. But uh, to to answer your question on the on the more on the vertical market and on the on the company side i mean you talk about seven times uh, you know uh, ebitda i was talking to a venture capital company that, that actually came to us to forecast a potential client that they were looking to buy they were paying they were offering 14x oh, because the the comment was there's just not that many good businesses out there right now so we've got to offer a premium for the ones that are <laughs> and so now you look at that in hindsight and say well i certainly hope they didn't end up paying 14 <laughs> <laughs> i know it's so in a tough position it's really tough it's really tough to quantify it but i agree with your general assessment that there will be a day of reckoning and and what that day looks like is not not a pretty sight for sure. So, and it, it's so interesting to me because, you know, in our boot camps and our digital courses, we teach about valuations, value growth. And like they have this whole, you know, in the discounted cash flow pricing, it's like company specific risk. And Alex, yeah. like, like I've, I've been on webinars with uh, one of some of the top investment banks in the US and they're like, we literally do not know how to price them because we do not know how to forecast revenue. Right. You know what I mean? So like, and like, this is just like, like, it's so intriguing to me because when you look at it, like, well, how am I supposed to forecast out how people are going to buy when we don't even know vaccines, contact tracing, testing, like we just don't even know. Right. So like, you can't like predict like how people are going to make revenue. So like, that's on the, just the, if you have an individual business, that's important. Yeah. But then also you go up to like, how do you price a valuation? So I can tell you kind of the approach that we've taken, given what you just said being fundamentally true, because without knowing the the actual timeline of this, you have to make assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. You have to make specific assumptions. And then in hindsight, you have to say, okay, these are the assumptions that were right. And these are the assumptions that were wrong. So the assumptions that we are making are uh, uh, several. Number one, I would say, is that the timing of this thing currently, based on uh, the data that we're tracking, based on cases, I think is less reliable because we're not doing enough testing right now. <laughs> right. right. So we're looking at death counts, which are a little bit more, you know, even with the caveat of, yes, that, that data can be manipulated, but I think that they're more indicative of actual yeah. Right. So we're looking at that for signs of a peak and of a of a of a decline on the backside of the bell curve. Our current main assumption is that by the time we get into the July, August, September timeframe, 
we are well past the peak from a uh, economic and health impact from a closures perspective. That means that things are more open. We are starting to see a thaw in the economy and starting to see people kind of trying to get back into normalcy on, on some level. Yeah, whatever that looks like. Still, yeah, that doesn't mean that we don't have cases. That doesn't mean we don't have deaths anymore. But we're clearly past the peak on the death cycle. We're, we're, we're essentially more in control of the situation and are able to exert some of that control in terms of getting more openings and, and getting the economy uh, breathing on its own again a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a key fundamental assumption. The other assumption I've alluded to already, but it's this notion that the things that the government are doing, despite their long-term ramifications, are going to have a positive impact in the short term of getting us back towards normalcy. However, when I say normal, it's really uh, uh, depends on how you interpret that word, right? So <laughs> uh, normal uh, to us means a reversion back to the natural tendency of the business cycle. What that means is we had things pointing to rise in the second half of the year. That means that once we get past the worst of it, we should start to see indicators pointing to rise once again. It's been pushed out, right? The low point, for example, that I told you for the industrial economy that we were projecting for mid-2020, we're now talking about a one-quarter 21 cyclical low and the rising trend only beginning in the second quarter of next year, right? So uh, when you look at the implications of that, and, and you hear people talk about V-shaped recoveries or U-shaped recoveries or L-shaped recoveries, what we're saying is when you look at the rates of change, right? That is a much uh, easier thing to wrap your mind around, the impact that, that this has from a rate of change basis, because rates of change are uh, subject to the laws of mathematics, right? Uh, and, and, and you will have more of a V-shape recovery when you look at the growth rates. That means if you have a very significant decline in Q2 of this year, by the time we get into Q2 of next year, you should see a much healthier growth number simply because it's not going to be under a full shutdown, hopefully. Yep. At that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. But, but that V-shaped recovery in the rate of change does not translate into a V-shaped recovery in actual volume of activity. When you look at the implications that has to something like the U.S. Industrial Production Index that marries uh, or, or that uh, uh, tracks the volume of industrial activity in this country, that looks a lot more like a shallow U with, with taking a longer time for us to get back to kind of 2019 peak levels, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if you have growth rates bounce back into positive territory by next year, the actual industrial economy in this country isn't made whole again until the second half of 22. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about, yes, it will feel like a rebound in the rates of change, but you won't feel as a business like you're getting back into what is traditionally normal operations for you until essentially uh, two years from now at the earliest and probably two and a half years from now. So that's the kind of timeline right now that we're looking at in terms of the recovery. Now, it is based on another assumption that this particular downturn, because it's driven by black swan events, is going to fall somewhere between 2015, 2016, the last time we saw oil prices collapse, and 2008, 2009. So it's going to be more severe than the last industrial recession we felt, but it's going to be not as severe as 08, 09, because what we were dealing with at that time was real fundamental flaws in the system, right? Housing bubble. We had the, the financial uh, crisis with the banking system. We had 
some similarly crazy things on Wall Street going on, but they were they were the culprits of that particular downturn. And most importantly, that's why it lasted as long as it did. It lasted 18 to 24 months. With this particular thing, we're thinking that it is shorter in duration, therefore not as intense from an amplitude perspective. So it falls somewhere between 2015, 2016, and 2008, 2009. Which makes sense. And then I and I'm curious on like how so all that makes sense to me. Yeah. And then when you layer on a different set of variables that I that I tend to gravitate towards of yeah. okay, now some of the big things that we need to consider is are people going to buy shit the normal way that they normally buy stuff, right? Yeah. Like like Warren Buffett posted last weekend, you can eliminate the middle row, but you still got the whole plane, right? right. I mean, and so like, hey, restaurant owner, you know, like you can open, but by the way, you were already living payroll to payroll. So why don't you go ahead and only get 25% occupancy? Like, yeah, yeah. right. Like I can't pay my bills, right? They right. still have the whole plane in their their world. So yeah. that's a typical, that's a fundamental that I see. I don't understand how them hospitals or not hospitals. Well, hospitals are got their own issues with their debt, but the, the, the hospitality industry and the, like all the suppliers that were giving them the, the, that made their world, you know, like marketing agencies or food vendors or brokers. Yeah. So if the consumers are only because they're now scared, like, I mean, literally we were talking about, I went to the hardware store and people, it's like, it's like, it's like everybody went around and smoked a joint and no one wants to talk to each other. Like, it's like, that's right. essentially what the whole world is like. And so how do you, adjust the consumer spend. And then when you realize, Alex, like if most of these business, the big corporations had this much debt on them, the trickle down effect all the way up to going, you guys can't maintain the growth. Like, I mean, they were like, they were, they were essentially forecasting nothing <laughs> that ever happened wrong. Yeah. And so when Ray, when Ray Dalio talks about the long-term debt cycle, how, because what you said makes sense. But then when you layer on that, people cannot, people being businesses cannot, yeah afford to have three months of 80% revenue. Right. How do you deal with that? I guess there's there's two things that I'll say in that response. I think that there are clearly portions of the economy that are going to be feeling what you're talking about a lot more so than others. Uh, in particular, big ticket purchasers, whether that's at the company level through capacity buildouts, through machinery and, and, and capital expenditures type stuff. I think that that's going to be taking a much longer time to recover, mm -hmm. uh, primarily because utilization rates on that type of stuff are very, very low. And it doesn't make sense to add new equipment when the utilization rate for your yeah, existing you stuff room. is in the right? Yep. So that, that thing, and then translating that to the consumer side of things, cars and, and the big appliances and things of that nature, you know, it, I, I try to not look at um, stock market valuations and, and, and doesn't mean and, anything these days. But what I see <laughs> that Tesla is back up at $700 a share. And then I try to justify that with this notion. I get all about the strength of their ecosystem and the green thing. I get it all right. But at the end of the day, even their lowest end model is 40 grand, right? Which who's going to buy a $40,000 car when you can't be sure that you might have your job today, but you might not have it six months from now, right? So that's, I think to me, that puts a, a real damper on the valuation side of things uh, in saying, you know, 
a lot of that is assumed on a fairly quick rebound in full activity levels coming back to normal. And it's very hard for me. I share your your pessimism in seeing that unfold given the dynamics of what you were talking about, right? So, so absolutely, there's going to be portions that are not made whole for a much longer period of time. And transportation and 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 travel and all of these things are are certainly you know, well within that realm, right? The other thing that I will say, and I guess this is a little bit, a little bit of, a, of a contrarian statement to what I was just talking about, we tend as human beings to project the current environment forward. It's mm-hmm. very difficult for us to imagine things being drastically different, even a very short period of time from now. So I, I guess the, the silver lining to what I'm trying to say is, if you were to talk to me having a similar conversation in mid-2008, as we were heading on the downside slope, as we're dealing with massive bubbles and all sorts of the economy, how do we recover from this? How do we ever go back to life as normal? I would say, yeah, I have a hard time seeing that unfold. And yet, if you look at the way that the economy, economy behaved in the subsequent 10 years after that, man, did we not only recover faster than most people expected, but we surpassed that and continued to grow at a very healthy pace, adding 20% of economic output to the number one economy in the world over a less than a decade timeframe. So I think what, what I guess the main message I'm trying to say is um, a lot of times business finds a way. It, even mm-hmm. though we can't project forward how to do it, there's going to be, uh, you know, new technologies, new opportunities. One of the things that we're talking about right now that is actually going to be very conducive to stimulating further growth in the U.S. is the very same notion that we were dealing with during 2018-19 as part of the trade war, which is businesses are increasingly questioning the reliability of their supply chain, right? Oh my gosh, totally. That we see happening as a result of this is new opportunities for new business formation and to to fill those gaps. We're no longer going to be comfortable depending upon China or Eastern Europe or whatever that we're sourcing components and materials from. We're going to make this conscientious decision that, yes, I know it's going to be more expensive to produce things here, but it's worth it to me because of the resiliency that that introduces into the supply chain. So well, hopefully wages go up from wages that. Wages go up, exactly. In, improving consumer sentiment and the ability to spend. I mean, the other thing that I will mention is contrary to 08, 09 versus what happened in late 2019 as we headed into these Black Swan events, both consumers and businesses were in much, much better financial shape. The amount of amount of liquid assets that businesses in this country had was over $2 trillion, so double the size that we had going into the 0809 downturn. So a lot of cash on hand. I mean, you look at these major corporations, they're sitting on hundreds of hundreds of billions of dollars of cash, right? They're hesitant to invest it, to, to do M&A, to, 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 to commit that money, but the cash is out there. The same thing can be said for consumers. The amount of consumer activity and the savings levels and the disposable income that we had going into this thing was much more favorable than going into 2008, 2009. So can I, can I ask you a question on that? Cause yeah, like, yeah, yeah. so how, when you have the, like, so on the haves and the have nots, I mean, you got the, I mean, every, everywhere you look, there's the populist move, movement going on, right. Yeah. That you hear about at least and debatable on how everybody perceives that. But like, so when you have the general economy, that is, the, if there's the sixty percent of the have-nots, right, who couldn't afford four hundred dollar right. issue, who, by the way, are the main generator of the consumer spend. Yeah. 
how does how do you when you start separating those into different buckets, how does that impact the data that you just described, right? When you have the people that are honestly the bartenders and the tattoo artists and all these people who are the general economy, yeah, that couldn't afford to deal with this, who are now dealing with this. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is going to be much more difficult for them, but it was also much more difficult for that very same subsegment of the population when we entered the last crisis, right? Because mm-hmm. we we did see a shift, for example, from eating out at restaurants to eating more at home, which is kind of what what it, it's is you going. Literally, on. have no choice now. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so so we we saw a lot of those positions get eliminated in the last downturn. They ended up coming back eventually. Um, I think that I, again, I'll point to the fact that the government is doing much more to prop up every yeah. individual this time around. Uh, where that goes long term is tough to say, but at least in the near term, you know, essentially the last time we got a stimulus check from the government back in 2008, 2009, it was enough to buy a cup of coffee, roughly speaking, right? Now we're talking about not only a bigger amount up front, but subsequent payments. And now there's been legislation introduced, uh, especially by the kind of the far left part of the house, which means that it's not likely to come to fruition in its full force, but it's basically guaranteeing payroll for six months for businesses. It's, it's, it's a, they're saying the issue that we've got with the stimulus packages right now is they're so short-term focused. Six to eight weeks is great, but where, where, what, where do we stand when we get into September, October? And, well, especially and it's, it's six to eight weeks from when you get the money and you might right. not even be open. Right. Exactly. It makes no sense. And that's why the focus has now been, let's focus on stability. Let's focus on a longer term. Let's guarantee uh, payments to com- companies over the next six months. That will put a little bit of an ease into this whole consideration. That's not to take anything away from the point that you're making. It's going to be very tough going. People are going to lose everything they have, right? They're going to lose their homes. They're going to lose, you know, we've already seen uh, things like uh, uh, suicide rates as a result of this start to tick back up, right? And 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 it's, it's going to be extremely sad to watch over the I next- agree. 12 to 18 months. But I think if we can rebound from the severity and the length of the downturn that we saw in 08, 09, we are positioned to do so again this time around, even though it's hard to conceptualize how we do that in the leveraged world that we all live in right now. Well, and and, and I agree. And I think that the the challenge that I have, because like I'm an internal optimist, but mm. when like when I look at this stuff, it's just like, it just becomes kind of math and you go, okay, well, if people spend less, and there's less revenue for businesses. And they were, I mean, you know, our business, we look inside the balance sheets just like you do. And they're like, you know, if you take, so I don't know if this is kind of set the framework so I, you can understand some of the, my thoughts and where they're coming from. So the U.S. Census Bureau, well, it would be coming up pretty soon, but out of yeah. out of, tw- out of uh, uh, 27 million companies, 6 million of them have employees, right? Yeah. So there's only 20,000 above 100 million. Then there's 350,000 between 5 million and 100 million. And then there's 5.7 million underneath 5 million in revenue. Right. And then they employed 120 million Americans. So like it's the backbone of America and you go average age is in their sixties. And a lot of the people underneath the 5 million in revenue were juggling payroll to payroll. Yeah. And so one to two months is the average amount of payroll that most businesses hold on. One to two months. Yeah. And like, so then you go, okay, well, if you just take some of these common assumptions or common facts, you say, okay, well, and if, if the economy is spending less money and these people are generally in, hospitality bars, restaurants, service businesses, like 
okay, so what do they do if they were already juggling that and now they shrink by 20%? Like, what do you, how do you deal with that? And then you go on the bigger side of the business, private equity firms were on a rampage to anybody that over was over 2 million in EBITDA. Like you said, you see 10, 11 times EBITDA. You're like, you're nuts. But then the reality is it wasn't their money. They were playing with the pension funds and the endowments, all of these big conglomerates of capital that were desperate for a rate of return. Now we're back to 0% interest. So now the, we go, we're back at square one going, the risk-adjusted rate of return on buying a privately held company at 14 times EBITDA doesn't make any sense. Right. So like, I don't know, like I just, I, for me, like it, for what you were saying, kind of, I live in the 10, 30 year chunks. So I don't even like the next 36 months, it's like, whatever, we're just going to deal with this. Yeah. I just don't understand how that all unfolds in a way that normalizes correctly without some painful deleveraging. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think anytime you talk about debt, you have to bring it back to this issue of what is debt in the first place? Because this, this notion that you're talking about right now very quickly, if I were to, to run down that foxhole, that rabbit hole after it, uh, you, you then start to question the entire stability of the American and the global financial system, right? I mean, we've been living in a world where we're essentially have made it monopoly money, right? It, yeah, they're, it's total they're, they're, fiat money that doesn't... Right, manifesting $6 trillion out of thin air <laughs> by moving some, some digits, some zeros and ones in an Excel spreadsheet column, right? Because we're never actually, we're not actually printing $6 trillion of actual currency, totally, right? Totally. So it's very easy to get kind of like, well, where are we living in reality or is this really a, just a sophisticated game of Monopoly that we play? I tried to describe to my wife, Megan, or my wife, Megan, Alex, who out. She's like, so where are we getting this? I'm like, so there's a Federal Reserve who literally doesn't have the other side of the balance sheet. Like no one owes them. Like, so like, and I'm like, well, there's these main central banks and they're all printing money. And essentially the only thing that normalizes them is the faith in each other. And then but, she just kind of looks at me like, can we just watch Netflix? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's usually where my conversations also end up, with, uh, whether it's my wife or, you know, my 10-year-old daughter, who's, uh, who's always asking me if we're still heading for the next Great Depression in, uh, in 2030. Um, but the, the reality is, I think it comes back to this underlying fundamental idea of debt, any amount of debt, whatever the dollar figure associated with it, is all based upon this focal point of where are you most likely to place your faith, right? It's all right. about, yeah. yeah, right? And when you look around the world, the United States of America, despite all the craziness oh. that you're seeing right now, still where not only we as consumers, but where the rest of the globe puts its faith. You know, the, you, if you look at the European countries, for example, Germany can't print more Deutschmarks or, 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 or Italy with the lira or, or, you know, what Spain with the peso. But we do. We have this capacity to essentially manifest vast quantities out of thin air. And as long as the world doesn't doubt our ability to continue to do that, then I think um, this, this kind of game will continue to play out. Uh, the government is going to continue to create immense amounts of stimulative action to support, I think, both individuals and businesses in the near term uh, to get them through the worst of it without letting, hopefully, as many companies fail as uh, would have normally. You know, mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to prevent uh, 100% of it by any no, means. No, but, yeah, totally. But certainly, um, you know, the, the focus is on you can furlough people, right? Let them keep their health benefits. But the idea is you bring them back. After after th things open up, you bring those people back. 
And, uh, and, and that notion, uh, as long as it is not in question fundamentally, is what's going to keep this game afloat for as long as it will. I mean, uh, again, 30 trillion, 100 trillion, 11 billion trillion, the numbers themselves don't actually matter, right? It's all, it's, it's Isn't all that funny. It, it, like you and I actually, we, we had that conversation after that last keynote where you're like, yeah. and it comes down to the faith, but then also your ability to pay your debts, right? Yeah. I mean, and then like, so again, what would people, what would make people lose their faith in us is if we're not paying our debts to other countries, essentially, That's right. right? That's right. I mean, yeah. and so like, what was the under like? What were the underlying assumptions with your twenty thirty Great Depression? Then, like, I mean, if it wasn't like the the big debt cycles that Ray Dalio yeah. is all out all out uh, preaching about, what 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 are the underlying so, workings, so, and does so, the timeline change? Yeah, debt. I think, and in particularly the interest rate for that debt as a percentage of our overall spending is going to rise. We we expect higher rates of inflation in the second half of this decade. We expect. Uh, obviously, the trend of demographic change, not only in the U.S., but around the world to continue to where the shift in spending towards, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all of those things will mean that the obligations component for the U.S. government, as long as we kind of get back into some sort of normalcy regarding trying to balance the budget and not taking $3 trillion budget deficits, which is what it's likely going to look like at the end of this congressional fiscal year. You know, once we get back into that mentality, then the way that you hypothetically deal with that rising debt is you cut spending on the one hand, right? Find places where you can shave and you bring in more income. You've got to prop up the other side of the equation. So that means higher taxation, both at the individual and the business level. So those things are still, I still think are the, the main yeah. that they can use. And, and, and so th- those things remain part of our calculus for the 2030 call. One of the things that we are growing a little bit more concerned about is when you look at this notion of faith related to the debt, um, it's easy for that to develop cracks, even if the origination of those cracks is not US-based. What I mean by that is if you look at China, for instance, they've got a very similar set of problems, except magnified by several orders of magnitude. Their demographic situation is worse. Their debt load is worse. There's all of this shadow banking stuff that nobody really knows how to quantify. So if, let's say, the situation starts where the dominoes start to crumble there, and we are now doubting Chinese ability to repay their debts, does that eventually infect other markets like the European Union and the United States. And I I would be a fool to say that I can't see that uh, potential thing happening down the road. So it's not just about our own stability and viability. It's about kind of the world as a whole, because we've gone through multiple decades of forming a globalized society, and we're now dealing with the ramifications of that. So that's certainly something that we're, we're contemplating and, and paying it very close to attention to. It's not just about the stability of the U.S., it's about the, the, the whole financial system stability around the world. And a lot of people are doing the same thing that we are too, which is what yeah. you're saying. <clears throat> so the I want to go back to you. So you mentioned inflation, and I yeah. think there's a lot of people going, "Okay, we're printing money." And depending on like people's level of understanding of this stuff, I mean, usually people go printing money, inflation, right? Yeah. So why don't you kind of address like, okay, why are people not seeing it now? Why is it going to happen down the road? And then what? How does that impact? The, the demographics, and how does that all tie into that that 2030 prediction that you're talking about? Yeah. So so. I mean, 
I think if you look back over the last 10 years, part of the reason why we haven't seen it really, inflation hasn't really been a major factor is because we didn't actually create that money. It's all digital currency trading hands between the Fed and the, 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 the federal government, right? Essentially, it's not pumping trillions of dollars of actual greenbacks into the system. So I, I, we think that that's part of why we haven't seen it yet. We think that there will be uh, especially once we get past this initial reaction to the COVID-19 crisis, an attempt by both the Fed and the, uh, the, the federal government to try to rein that in some. And keep in mind, uh, the majority of our debt is actually not foreign country owned. The U.S. government is actually the second largest holding of U.S. debt. And the first largest holding is U.S. consumers, investors here in the mm -hmm. United States. And so I, I think that it's it's easy to see that even if other countries start questioning the viability of our ability to repay that, because the vast majority of it is held we here. We control it. We control it, essentially, right? I think it's a great misnomer to think that China controls most of our debt. They simply do not. It's only one no trillion. Longer, there isn't, they're so not even the top holder foreign holder. It's now Japan. Japan has exceeded China in terms of the, the amount of treasuries that they hold. You know, so so to, to go back to your original question, what causes inflation? I think inflation is caused by some of the trends that we've already discussed, bringing production and high, paying higher wages uh, corresponding to that additional production here. I think a lot of it also has to do with resource scarcity, right? As we run into more and more scarce resources, as the world's population is expected to continue to grow and, and, and the economy is not long-term in decline, it's just facing a temporary setback and then expect it to grow again, the competition for resources is going to rise dramatically. Whether that those resources are energy or clean water or any of the main fundamental things that you need to have continued economic growth. So uh, a big part of that inflationary expectation is this notion of scarcity of resources. And as how does that impact the, the demographics? Because I think the resources and the need of resources is going to, it's the, the, the makeup of that's going to change with the demographics changing, right? Well, I think that, uh, that that's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, if, if you look at the changes in demographics, essentially boil down to this notion that if you look at the U.S. population or, or really the global population, the older generations are now transitioning into retirement and in the near term future will start to die off in significant numbers, creating room for the younger generations to then hopefully take take those positions and, and thrive in those positions. So I think from a, a resource competition perspective, it's not necessarily the demographic change that's going to drive them, but uh, primarily the growing number of people. I mean, if you look at any population projections and the, the amount of consumption that happens, it's driven by the total number of people, not necessarily by the demographic component of that population. Although it's very easy to say that, yes, older people consume less because they are more likely to not be involved in the job force. So therefore, they're not commuting. They're not traveling as much. They're not consuming as much. And a lot of times, your retirement is very kind of passive, right? And from an active versus passive perspective. But I think it's, it's predicated upon more the overwhelming growth in the population that is expected. Uh, and and the, the strain that that will put on resources rather than anything specific to the demographic change. I will say that if you look at the demographics here, 
the millennial population is actually larger than right. the baby boomers, like right? Like 82 by, million by a, or something like that. Yeah, but by, by a significant amount. Uh, but also the the needs and wants of that population are very different than, than were the needs and wants of the others. So it's a very complicated question to answer, but I think the the, the notion is you tie consumption to the, the number of people and the more consumers there are, the more competition for resources there is. So... As we're wrapping up, like someone, because I think you and I could probably go on for a long time. I really enjoy this stuff. Yes. So then you go, okay, I'm, I own a business. Like, what the hell do I do about this? You know, and like, I, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how, what the new normal goes. Cause like, I, you know, for a long time, we were helping people grow the value of the business with the end of mind, which is what we're still doing. Um, yeah. We eliminated the word exit off of everything because I think a lot of people freaked out about this word exit and what should I do? But I think people have to have a little bit more intention, which is where yeah. we've migrated a lot of our messaging towards do this right. So you got more options, grow a valuable company. You know, you can control your universe and you yeah. can control the things that you're doing, you're investing in your time, your money, your resources, you know, in given the fact that on the bell curve, there's probably more people that are on the older age yeah. and there are probably, I think I, I have re- recited your last uh, podcast, a quote where you said, if you really didn't like someone, you'd sell them your business <laughs> and then you'd watch them tank and then you'd buy it back for pennies yeah. on the dollar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so without, you know, I said that in tongue in cheek because, you know, I think a lot of people are going to have to say, okay, what is my plan? Right. Yeah. Instead of this this free for all of just buying shit left and right, and there is nothing that can harm the the, the U.S. or the world. I mean, hey, we've now got our kind of morale, uh, mortality kind of like, hey, we have to do some. We have to go back to the basics of doing stuff yeah. right. What do yeah. you think? Like when you're looking at your leading indicators, someone that's looking at you know what does this mean for me? How, yeah. how would you how would you start putting something to uh, plan in place? So I think. There's short-term things that you've got to be focused on, and then there's medium to long-term things that you've got to be focused on. Short-term, I think not enough people are looking at projecting their cash flow beyond the immediate future. What I mean by that is everyone's concerned about current situation right now, this month, next month. But have you done cash flow projections into September, October, November timeframe? What does that position look like? And do you need to engage with a banker right now in order to make sure that you've got the available cash? And I'm not talking about just PPP related type of initiatives. It's an actual cash flow. (laughs) Actual cash flow and (laughs) any lines of credit that you can tap on. You know, that's kind of the the, the, the part where we're seeing very little focus. Everyone's either very short-term right now or they're thinking about how do I benefit from the next rising trend when it comes, but how do you bridge the gap between what happens now and what happens in the longer term? I think that's a key component. And one of the things that we're telling people that they absolutely must do is do medium-term cash flow projections. And then based on what those projections are telling them, they've got to act. The second part that I would say is you've got to look at not only your own financial stability, but that of both your customers down the, fee- the, the line and of your suppliers, right? You've really got to understand where the vulnerability are, is because what we're seeing right now from a lot of our customers is even those with a healthy backlog, they're starting to see a lot of their orders not only just get canceled, but they, they've built the product. And then they're not able to deliver it because the customer says, I can't, uh, I can't take it right now. I'm shut down or I simply have no need for that machine right now. And so it's creating some real short term cash flow uh, issues for these businesses. So you've got to understand where the vulnerability is both on the downstream and the upstream from a, from a supplier mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. position too. 
Longer term, I think you've got to capitalize on some of those things that we discussed earlier, meaning you've got to be able to, if you want to exit the business in the next several years, those companies that are going to say, we have resiliency in our supply chain, we have resiliency and diversification in our portfolio, both of suppliers and of customers. We're not, we don't have all of our eggs in one basket. That's the kind of thing that's going to get a more favorable multiple than someone that's just kind of, I'm the the average, right? So so those are the things and and recognizing that it's got, you know, a higher price tag to achieve some of that stuff, but selling that in the value proposition and your frontline sales team, right? I think that's the key messaging that your clients need to hear right now. Well, yes, we we know that we're maybe five to 10% more expensive than our competitor, but our supply chain is entirely in North America. We have lead times of two weeks versus three months for anything being brought over from China. That's the kind of uh, communication mm-hmm. that is going to win you orders today even at a slightly higher price point. So from a business preparedness perspective, from a continuity perspective, and with the eventual notion of selling the business, we won't call it exiting per, per, per well, year. I think it, 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 no, I think it's, it's true because it's having the options, right? Because like even, you know, even if you wanted to transition it to a family member or do an ESOP, the, the cash flow has got to be sustainable. Right. That's right? Exactly. I mean, so it doesn't matter what you want to do with it. So everything you just mentioned, whether you want to keep the business or not, I mean, we're seeing a very like tried and true test on sustainable cash flow all across the, <laughs> the world right now. Yeah. Well, and, and it's it's a really tricky thing to manage. I mean, it's easy for me as an economist to say, do this, do that. But you've got to remember, people recall how you treat them, right? So six to 12 m- months from now, you, if you're thinking, okay, this guy's in real trouble, I'm not going to extend him those favorable payment terms. And then, you know, he manages, manages to get through it and, and remembers it and he'll go somewhere else because that, that bad taste in his mouth isn't going to go away, right? So it's so navigating the minefield. It's so, so, so challenging. So true. And uh, a couple books, I don't know, that for the audience is uh, Simon Sinek's Infinite Game, Conscious Capitalism. I mean, and I just did a podcast interview with this uh, private equity owner, owns a bunch of companies. And he literally said, I'd rather, I'd, how, how do you put it? He goes, I'd rather take like millions off of the balance sheet than fire 10% of my labor force because he's just like, people remember. <laughs> like, and, and they're going to get, they're the ones that are going to get you through it. Well, and, and, and to that point, look, towards your greatest resource, which is your employees, right? I think a lot of times when things are busy, uh, business owners uh, look at, you know, day-to-day stuff, they look at long-term strategy, but they don't always tap the resource that is most readily available, which is you hired those people because they were smart and capable. Get their opinions, get their buy-in, get them to, to bring you ideas for how to either cut costs or increase revenue, new markets, things that they hear about because there's all sorts of chatter going on, but you've got to be seeking it out. You, you can't wait for people to actually work up the guts and walk into the president's or the CEO's office and say, hey, I've got some ideas I want to share with you. You've got to draw that out of people. And I think as business leaders, that's the, the that's going to be the separation between people that are able to go through this successfully and the people that will succumb is this this notion that we're all in it together. I, I need your input as much as you need my input because we together run this business. It's not just me or just you. And I think that is the best part of anything that's happened is yeah. like, we are all in this together. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, there's a lot of corny stuff going on that has got those on uh, taglines and stuff. But I mean, it's really true because like you just said, I mean, you're watching the so-called president, CEO, male, female, who is usually untouchable, 
Yeah. You've got some kids in the background. They're screaming. Your dog's there. You're in your sweats. You, you don't have good Wi-Fi. Yeah. You're not some like invincible human being. Right. So I think if there's anything that owners can take away from that, it's like people know that, right. Let them like bring in the ideas. Don't, I mean, there's so much ego out there. We all look the same on zoom, man. We all, look <laughs> the same. That's, yeah. that's it. You know, of course, don't take your laptop into the bathroom with you as you're taking it. There's some good <laughs> etiquette that you can, you can address. Right. Yeah. So Alex, you know, you guys provide a ton of great resources. So if someone's looking for more information, you guys, what, what, what's the best way to consume you guys engage? What, what, you know, where, where can we find you? Yeah, I mean, uh, our website right now is, is probably the best tool that you can leverage. We've got a couple of things set up, particularly in response to these events. So we're offering a 90-day free trial of that trends report that I mentioned earlier. You can sign up. You can get not only our latest opinion and forecasts on so many different verticals in the macro economy as well, but you get an executive summary from our CEO for the next three months that's really going to help you kind of cut through some of the fear and the sensationalization of what's going on and get at the actual things that matter to you from a business running perspective. So take advantage of that. Uh, It's on our website. The other thing is you've got to really understand the business cycle idea. And and we're we're offering another tool. It's called uh, Datacast. It's also on our our website. We're giving you a two-week free trial right now. Check it out. It basically takes your company data. You know, you talk about forecasting individual businesses, right? You've got to, in order to do that, you've got to find what your leading indicators are and you've got to compare yourself to them. This tool will take your company's performance, whether it's revenue or sales or unit shipments, and it will plot your business cycle relative to all of the series that we have access to. Tens of thousands of data series. It will show you the ones with highest correlations, the ones with the best lead times, and it will give you that insight of what you can expect based on your relationship to your vertical markets and the overall economy. So check that out, itreconomics.com. Uh, I think it'll be time well spent on your part. I love it. And uh, you, a little note on how this all ties together, even to what we're doing. Um, you were talking about cash flow. We actually, my partner and I created a Mastering Your cash flow video series and uh, course. So we've got 13-week cash flow statements, annual budgeting, revising, how to do all this stuff. Because I think yeah. you said last time, Alex, when you were looking to help people, I don't remember what, what percentage, but you said most people can't even put their data into that because it's all shit. <laughs> and so well, I, the whole point is get your financials together so you can actually start making some decisions. And I think now is the time to regardless of wherever you go for it is you got to be able to get the data right to be able to start making decisions well and 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 keep in mind i mean this is human nature at play uh, you know and it's most vulnerable it's hard for a president or a ceo to admit that you're not comfortable with something you don't know how to do but you've got a great amount of resources available people that really genuinely want to help you out uh you know whether it's ryan and his business uh, with cash flow management and valuations whether it's us at itr with macroeconomic data and kind of getting a sense of what's going on in your vertical markets leverage those tools be ready to admit when you need help and then seek out that help and take advantage of it because that's going to be the difference if you just kind of have your blinders on and try to get like just bull your way through it. It's not going to be successful. You need to well, leverage it's, it's it. It's painful, right? right? Why do that when you don't have to? You know what I well, mean? Uh, again, human nature is, is uh, you know, questionable at times. That's <laughs> you know, well, my partner says that, you know what the most powerful hum- uh, force of human nature is? What's that? Denial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just total denial. No, Alex, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I appreciate it very much. Awesome. Good talking to you, Ryan. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you like the economy, economic data, forecasting, trying to figure out the future, uh, you probably enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, check out some of the links in the show notes. That would be one of my highest recommendations. Um, we've got links on the Ray Dalio articles. If you want to dive into those, they're really meaty, but they're uh, fantastic information. We have links to the Mastering Your Cashflow course, as well as the Intentional Growth Digital course. As Alex said, one of the best things you can be doing is figuring out how to build that bridge between now and then over the course of the next 18 months, which I truly believe starts with education. If you're juggling cash flow, check out the Mastering Your Cashflow course. Otherwise, if you want to shift your mindset and make sure that what you're focusing on in your business is strategically growing the value of the company and that your time, money, and energy and is going to be getting a rate of return by having a valuable company when and how you need it, you got to check out the course because the last thing I want for anybody is waking up in three to five years and they're exactly where they are today because they didn't focus on the right thing. So check out the courses, check out the links. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to seeing you next week.